0: Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Five, four, three, we have ignition.
0: Hopes were so So high. The
1: first United Launch Alliance Vulcan rocket.
0: On Monday, the rocket carrying the moon lander Peregrine launched without a hitch. The hope was that the United States would make a soft landing on the moon for the first time in 50 years. But then... There is a problem with its propulsion system, something they discovered a few hours after liftoff. A fuel leak in the lunar module's propulsion system means the Peregrine will not land on the moon. And it's not the only thing that's gone wrong on the road back to the moon. NASA's Artemis mission was also scheduled to launch later on this year, planned to be the first time in 50 years a human sets foot on the moon. But complications on that project push the timeline to 2025. Both missions are part of an escalating moon race. Rebecca Boyle is a science journalist and author of Our Moon, How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet, Guided Evolution, and Made Us Who We Are. Rebecca, hello. Good morning. I want to talk about these latest developments in a moment, but why do you love the moon?
1: <laughs> well, I've I loved it since I was a kid, and I think a lot of young people have sort of an affinity for it in part because it's in so many bedtime stories um and I've always I never left that connection I guess to me it's part of earth and it it literally physically is part of earth and so when I look at it I feel something like homesickness Mm. I guess um or like a sense of of longing like it's right there but it's so far away and yet it's right there and it's so part of us it's so near and I I feel like it's We've always been connected to it in ways that I don't think we always fully appreciate. Well,
0: that's it, right? I mean, you can take it for granted. And then I was thinking like this, it must have been this summer, this fall, um, was out of the city. And one of those giant supermoons kind of rises up over this field. And it was unbelievable. Like you stand and you stare at it and you think this thing is there, but I al- it's always there. But I never really notice it until I really notice it. Why do we take it for granted, do you think?
1: Yeah, it can sneak up on you. you know, and <laughs> it can it hides behind the leaves of trees, and especially when it's not full, and when it's a crescent or when it's in its gibbous phase, which is when it's like this lopsided, not quite round shape. It sort of just hangs out, and it draws you to it. Maybe if you're in open country, and there's not buildings or trees around you, it catches your eye. Or, yeah, supermoons, you know, which is a relatively new f- name for mm. this phenomenon when the moon is a little bit closer than normal in its orbit. It does look a lot brighter. It looks bigger. It sort of dominates even more than usually the nighttime landscape. And yeah, it's, it's easier to remember it when it's right there.
0: You've said that religion and science stem from our relationship with the moon. How so?
1: Yeah, I think our fascination with the moon is largely responsible for the creation of both of these enterprises. And I think they're probably a lot more alike in their goals than people like to think they are, and maybe not their methods. But both religion and science give us tools that can help us understand the universe and our place in it. And we struggle with things like eternity and death and return. And the moon is the really obvious way to conceptualize these things. It it comes back, you know, it goes away, it changes every night, and yet it returns. And so it symbolizes a lot of these events that are difficult for people to grasp, like growth and becoming and, and diminishment. And I think it sort of is the center of our attempts to understand those things. And a lot of that sort of fed the beginnings of religion, but then those attempts fed the beginnings of science as well. And I think they're more connected than people may think. I
0: have friends who work in, in the world of astronomy, and they often talk about the moon being a pain because it's really yeah. bright and it blocks out a lot <laughs> of the things that they're trying to – are they are they just complaining or is that, is that a fair – Criticism. No, it's
1: it's so true, and I think this is one of my goals: is be, is to be like, no, it's really important, and don't <laughs> forget about it. But yeah, I mean, if if you're an astronomer and you're studying deep space objects, it's really pride, It's annoying. It, you have to schedule your observations when it's not up, and you know that's about half the month. You can kind of have a dark night sky without a bright moon washing out your images. And yeah, and so that's that's one reason why I wrote this book was to be like, no, the moon itself is really a valuable thing to study and it's really interesting. And I love astronomy and astrophysics, but the moon is right here and it's, it's something worth studying in its own right.
0: When you heard that, given that, when you heard that um, the plan was to put a human back on the moon, what went through your mind?
1: I'm excited about the idea of people going back up there. I think it's worth doing. I think it's worth exploring. I think it's worth... Bringing ourselves there, you know, both physically and and mentally, and and culturally, and spiritually. So make make do
0: that. Make make the case for going back to the moon.
1: I mean, I think it's it's a valuable enterprise. It's a valuable adventure. It's something that humans should do because we can. It's like the idea of climbing mountains. You know, they're there, so let's go see what they look like from a different perspective. And you know, one of the most valuable things about studying the moon is studying Earth. It's sort of gave us this new perspective on our planet when we went there the first time in the 1960s. And I think that's still possible. And there's a lot of really interesting geology that we can do on the moon about itself and about Earth and about their shared history. And I think it's really worth exploring. I just hope that when that happens, it's more thoughtful and more deliberate than maybe this the current kind of headlong rush moonward has been.
0: Okay, so what, what are you worried about? Because right now there are... private entities, but also countries, and maybe they're working together. But certainly um, what we've heard and what we've talked about is that that the private sector seems to be driving a lot of this through innovation. What are you worried about when they're trying to get to the moon?
1: I just hope that there is some general sense of why we're going and what we hope to do. And I think right now it's, it's more, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of sort of jingoism and, you know, and not only in the United States, but also in, in other countries that have put rovers up there like India and China. There's a lot of attempts to get up there as a, to make a point, <laughs> to do something just because. And I think that can easily become difficult. And especially when you have commercial enterprises in play, there are a lot of attempts to extract things from the moon, either water or moon dust or some minerals that might be up there. And, you know, there's this sort of like, let's get rich mentality that underlies a few of these recent missions, which is exciting, but can also be, you know, troubling. And it depends on how we approach it.
0: So what should we be thinking about? When you say that we want to, you're looking for a thoughtful approach, characterize and frame that thoughtful approach for me.
1: One thing I want people to think about is that anything we do to the moon is forever. It has no geology. It has no Water cycle. It has no wind. It has no erosion. There's nothing that will ever change the moon once we start changing it, besides us in the future. And so when we talk about being good ancestors on Earth, which is the thing we hear about a lot right now in the climate movement, I want to extend that to the moon. We need to think about who will use it after us, what they will think of it, what they will do with it. And the moon as an entity, you know, worth respecting the way that we respect our home planet, I hope. And I think that's something we need to, to have a discussion about.
0: What do you think we could learn from this? I mean, people will, will question spending time and money on this, but to, your argument is that we can learn about the moon, but we can also learn about ourselves. What, what are the questions that you hope we could answer if and when we put people back on the moon?
1: Uh, there's a huge spectrum of things we can learn, and it goes from things as you know, mundane as miniaturizing electronics and you know doing a better job with communication and space up to the most profound questions we've ever asked, which is, why are we here? And why here? Why us? Why now? You know, the moon and Earth is a very unique system. It's the only place like this that we know. It's a very huge satellite compared to Earth, which is unique. And it's pretty far away, which is unique. It's part of Earth geologically, which is unique. And I think there's a lot we can learn about understanding that relationship and whether that is something that made us who we are, whether that made us unique and that made us possible, made life on earth possible. And I think that's worth exploring.
0: I watched that JFK speech um, that I quoted earlier from 62 kind of on a regular basis in part because it's just great oratory, but also because (laughs) it's about ambition, right? We choose to go to the moon. We do these difficult things, not because they're easy, but because they're hard. Why is it? We've been to the moon before. Why is it so difficult to get back there?
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny how we sort of feel like it should be easy. You know, we did this 50 plus years ago with pretty, you know, rudimentary technology. And yet, we can't do it again. And I think that's in part because it's just really hard. It's the even though a lot of time has passed, we've learned a lot about how to build rockets. The physics has not changed. You know, the moon is really far away. It's 380,000 kilometers from here. And,
0: you kept, and saying, you kept saying earlier on that it's right there, which I think is really interesting. Like, it seems it, like it's right there, but it is far.
1: It is, yeah. That's one of these dichotomies about the moon that I sort of like, where it feels like it's right next door. It's right next to us in the sky all the time. It accompanies us the way the sun does. But, you know, if you were, like, driving at highway speeds, and which, which you can't, you need to go faster than that to leave Earth, but imagine that you could drive, like, 100 kilometers an hour it would take you almost 6 months to get there. <laughs> it's really far away and that's a huge physical problem to solve. Like you have to go really really fast to get off earth and then cover this distance and then go all the way back to zero to land. And that's hard. It's just a physical challenge and you know, that hasn't changed in 50 years even though we've we've been building rockets for that whole time and building space capsules. It's just challenging to do it and especially when you don't have a pilot like the Apollo missions did, who can make decisions quickly, a human pilot who's trained, who knows what they're doing, who can make a decision, you know, that it's more difficult for an algorithm to do that on a spacecraft or a robot. And that's what we saw this past week with Astrobotics Lander. And they had a fuel issue, which is really unfortunate for them. And my heart goes out to that entire team who's been working on this for, you know, a decade or now or more now. Um, but, you know, space is hard. And this is a good reminder that it's hard. and And we should not take our presence up there for granted.
0: Can I go back just as as we end to what we started with, which is, what do you want us to think about? It's been cloudy where I am for the last, it seems like forever. So I haven't seen the moon in a long time, but it will appear (laughs) again. The next time I see it, what do you want me to think about? What do you want us to think about?
1: Well, it's a new moon um, right now, actually. And so it's going to be a crescent here in the next couple of nights. Um, And you'll start to see it's sort of gradually appearing in the night sky, looking larger and larger over the next few days. And I hope that if you notice it, or if if your listeners notice it, they think about its connection to us, all of us, and not just that it's this beautiful object in the sky, but it's really a part of everything that's ever happened on this planet. And it's one of the things that makes us unique.
0: The sense of wonder that you have about something that so many of us take for granted is infectious. Um, You have a book that comes out next week that talks about this, and I cannot, I ordered it last night. I cannot wait to read this. Thank you very much, Rebecca.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Rebecca Boyle is a science journalist and author of Our Moon, How the Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet, Guided Evolution, and Made Us Who We Are. That book comes out on Tuesday, the 16th of January. Now, despite the excitement, scientists are worried we might have too much plan for the moon. Many, as you heard, are calling for more regulation to balance those public and private interests. Ian Crawford is a professor of planetary science at Birkbeck University of London. Ian, hello to you. Oh, good morning. What do you make of, of the private companies, and there are there are public interests as well, um, but the scramble to, to, to send modules to the moon?
2: Well, I think it, there are two sides to this, coin. On the one hand, the commercial companies are doing... Um, a lot to reduce the cost of accessing the Moon. So that will benefit anyone who wants to do anything on the Moon, including the scientific community. If if the cost to accessing the Moon comes down, we'll be able to send more scientific instruments and we'll be able to collect more rock samples. So from that point of view, I think all of this commercial activity is a very positive thing. Um, Where it could become in tension with the scientific exploration of the Moon is if the private activities start to damage lunar environments before we've been able to properly study them. So that that's where regulation is needed, I mm. think. I I wouldn't argue that we shouldn't have commercial activities on the moon because they can be beneficial, but we need regulations to uh, to uh, to limit those activities or to manage them in such a way that they don't cause harm to to important natural environments before we've had a chance to study them.
0: Rebecca talked a little bit about this, but from your perspective, what do scientists want to learn by returning to the moon? What is, what is the, 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 the pitch for us to go back oh. there?
2: Well, there's an enormous amount of science to do, to do on the Moon. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how much time you have. I, I would break this down into three, three bullet points. Um, there's the geology of the Moon itself and its evolutionary history and its relationship with the Earth that we don't fully understand. So Rebecca did touch on that. Um, I think there's also the fact that the, moon, the, the Moon's surface has been exposed to space for billions of years, and, and the Moon has no atmosphere. It has no magnetic field. Its own geology has been inactive for a long time. And so this means that things falling on it from space, like meteorites, solar particles from the solar wind, particles from the galaxy, all of these things just strike the lunar surface. So so the lunar surface is like a museum, a a big museum of the whole history, not only of the solar system, but of the the space environment of of the Earth-Moon system. Uh, and and, and the, the lunar rocks contain this record. We know that they do, thanks to the Apollo program. So by exploring that, we've got an access to a sort of time machine that goes deep, deep back into the history of the solar system. Mm. And then the third bullet point is the, the possibility that the moon may be a useful platform for astronomy, observational astronomy of various kinds, um, and especially the far side, which is permanently shielded from the Earth is probably the best place for radio astronomy anywhere in the solar system. So I think if I had to encapsulate the scientific case, it would be those three bullet points. How do those points
0: collide with the interests of private companies that are also involved in this moon race?
2: Yeah. Yes, no, so it's an excellent question. So clearly an example would be if you wanted to build a radio telescope on the far side of the moon, you would do that in part because it's shielded from radio interference on the Earth. So it would not be good if you had a private uh, act set-up or, any act, or, or a state-led activity, any sort of activity, on the on the far side of the Moon where you were trying to study the radio sky if it was emitting radio radio interference. So that would need to be regulated. You'd have to ensure that other activities on the far side of the Moon that will inevitably emit radio waves... Uh, are shielded from where we're trying to build a radio telescope. I mean, that would be one example, but, but I, I mean, I can, I can think of others.
0: Who, this sounds like a simple question, and I don't know the answer to this. Who determines who gets to land on the moon right now?
2: Well, nobody, I, I essentially. Well, nation states do. I mean, uh, the, the activities of, of all activity in space are currently governed by the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, and this, this provides the framework in which all space exploration operates. But it devolves to the spacefaring nation states that are parties to the treaty to regulate activities um, of their own commercial um, entities that are under their jurisdiction. Sounds a bit like the Wild West in in outer space. Well, it's not quite a Wild West In insofar as we do at least have the Outer Space Treaty that sets some guidelines. But of course, the treaty... Dates from nineteen sixty-seven. There were no. There was no one envisaged commercial activities on the moon in nineteen sixty-seven. And really, although this treaty has a, has one hundred and twenty state signatories now, it was really set up as a treaty between the United States and the Soviet Union to regulate their their activities at, during the during the so-called space race. Mm. So it's not. It is an excellent foundation on which to build a legal and regulatory framework, but it is out of date and so there is an urgent need to bring it up to date to accommodate the, the 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 new reality that we're in
0: some of the language in that treaty i mean talks about you know preserving the moon for the and and, and the moon being the province of all mankind um which sounds kind of quaint and, and cute now given how the state of the world and the state of relations between nations how should the decisions get made who should be in charge of who gets to land on the moon
2: well i i I think, I mean, if you're asking my personal opinion, which I guess 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 you are, mm. I do think we need higher-level international oversight on these activities in order to stop it degenerating into a wild west, or even worse, into a a, a sort of a, a, a situation where you could have conflict between nation states like the United States or China, um, and and to manage this properly does, in my view, require a higher level of international oversight. So this would mean putting it more under the control, control of, of, of the United well, currently the United Nations is the only global body we have, and beefing up the UN's capacity to oversee these activities. Um, of course, that, at the moment, that's a bit of a pipe dream, because many of these nation states are exploring the moon for their own perceived national self-interest. So there's a there would be a conflict there and pushback against an attempt to internationalize the exploration of the moon and is that uh, just if, is that
0: just about planting a flag do you think or is there something else that though that that nations want to do we've talked about you know the research and 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 the commercial interests that could be there but when countries are trying to get there before somebody else is that really just about saying see we got here and here's the flag
2: I think it's more than that in that there is, there is a lot of, as, as you mentioned, a lot of genuinely valuable science to do as well. But, of course, there is a geopolitical aspect. Certainly the new, the new emerging space powers like, um, well, China until recently, but now China's quite established, uh, Japan, India. I mean, Japan's going to attempt to land a spacecraft on the moon this, later this month. Of course, part of that is to demonstrate their capability. I mean, if you want to demonstrate you're a technologically capable country and you want to do it in a very high profile way, then, of course, landing something on the moon is, is one way to do it. Uh, provided, of course, your landing is successful. I mean, it's, in a sense it's less good if your landing fails. But that's, I guess that's the risk you take.
0: What do you think it'll look like? on the moon in 50 years time. There are grand plans to get there and people have talked about space tourism and moon hotels and on and on and on. in 50 years time what will it be like there, do you
2: think? Well, I it's it's it, with, you know, it's imponderable without having a crystal ball because so much depends on political decisions that are, you know would have to be made. I would like to think that in 50 years' time we would have we'd have an international research station, something like the space station, except on the moon, an international lunar research base, something like an Antarctic, um, like the bases on the on the continent of Antarctica, where the they facilitate a huge amount of scientific exploration on Antarctica by providing scientific infrastructure. I think science could benefit greatly from a moon base. But I do think it should be an international moon base. I don't think we want lots of different nations setting up their own moon bases. That, that makes little sense to my mind. So I think what we should be aspiring to is an international moon base akin to something like the International Space Station, but on the moon, fulfilling a role, a scientific role that the Antarctic research stations provide in Antarctica. That is what I would like to see in 50 years' time.
0: Just finally, do you think it'll be
2: possible to keep the commercial interests at bay? I, I'm not sure what you mean by at bay, because, like I said at the beginning, they they have a role to play. I mean, they can bring things to the table that will help facilitate the scientific exploration of the moon. It's really just a question of regulating them so that they 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 provide benefits without 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 harming the environment. I guess
0: that that's what I mean. I mean, when money um, is at play here, that often it it will be the money that speaks. Um...
2: Yes, although I'm a bit, I'm doubtful that there's anything on the moon that these companies, most of the business models, as I understand it, of these companies that are trying to, there's there's a lot of talk about mining the moon, but a lot of it is really hyperbole, because there isn't really anything on the moon that's going to be valuable enough to dig up on the moon and move to the Earth. There are things on the moon that will be valuable to dig up and sell to other people working on the moon, like water, for example, dug up from the lunar poles. There is a, there's a potential market. If you're building a moon base, if there was a local source of water, that would be very useful because then you wouldn't have to lift the water from the earth. And there are private companies that are eyeing this activity. But since, since their main customer would be some government-led enterprise, they're not really in competition. I mean, the companies will be in competition with each other, perhaps, to to sell water to the anchor customer that is the moon base. But I think because of the way this would work, I think there is, there, there, there is a route to regulating this activity. Um, it's just a question of, of, of making, making, developing the rules, because, because currently they haven't been.
0: Yeah. I'm really glad to talk to you about this. This is fascinating. Ian, thank you very much. Thank you. Ian Crawford is a professor of planetary science at Birkbeck University of London. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.